0: Pride Month is coming to a close, and for the past few weeks, communities across Connecticut and across the world have celebrated LGBTQ plus identities and progress. But Pride Month is about so much more than just rainbow flags and parades. In fact, its origins are much more radical. The very first Pride began as a riot.
1: In the summer of 1969 in New York City in a gay bar in Greenwich Village, the Stonewall Inn, uh, LGBT people fought back uh, after fairly routine police raid, uh, and riots ensued over the course of the next week. And the reason we generally celebrate Pride in June, and especially the last week of June, is to commemorate uh, the Stonewall riots.
0: The fight for LGBTQ plus rights dates back decades before the Stonewall Uprising. In 1924, the Society for Human Rights became the first gay rights organization in the U.S. Unfortunately, the society disbanded due to political pressure, and it would take more than four decades before a codified gay liberation movement emerged. This is Disrupted, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour we take a deep dive into LGBTQ pride and history. We'll take a look at Stonewall, but also other moments in the movement that don't get as much attention. Here to walk us through some of that history is Mark Stein. He's the Jamie and Phyllis Pasker Professor of History at San Francisco State University. He's also director of the Out History website and co-editor of Queer Pass. It's a digital history project. Ask Mark to talk about the role of trans people of color like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera.
1: Well, the movement that had begun to develop in the 1950s and 60s uh, included diverse politics. Uh, so there was a, a probably predominant homophile movement that was mostly white, mostly male, uh, and critical of, of trans um, people and issues in part for strategic reasons, the fear that that might undermine Uh, what was commonly perceived as the priority for the movement, which was gay and lesbian rights. But there were also um, other factions in the movement in the 50s and 60s that were supportive of trans rights, trans liberation, where trans Uh, Issues were foregrounded. Uh, I've documented a a sit in in a restaurant in Philadelphia at Dewey's uh, in the mid 1960s that focused on um, on trans people. There's the Compton's cafeteria riot in San Francisco, another episode. There's another demonstration in Los Angeles. Uh, by female impersonator Sir Lady Java, who was African-American and had been terminated uh, from her job. So that earlier movement uh, was divided on these issues. Stonewall was a moment, I would say, when the disenfranchised within the LGBT movement really came to the fore. That included uh, unhoused uh, poor white people, but it also included uh, people of color, trans people. There's there's some debate about exactly the role that Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera played um, at the moment that the Stonewall riots erupted. They themselves gave conflicting accounts about uh, when they arrived, whether they were there, and what exactly they did. But I think it's clear that they became important leaders um, in the aftermath of the Stonewall Rebellion, regardless of the precise role that they played that week. Um, and I think rather than focus on particular individuals, I think uh, with, with absolute confidence, I can say that trans people more generally were active, were important, were significant uh, during the rebellion that week, and certainly in the movements that developed uh, in the months and years that followed.
0: You've mentioned Stonewall happening during that week and and all of the things that led up to it in New York City and also some of the consequences and aftermath in New York City. But you've also mentioned places like Los Angeles and Philadelphia And I think it speaks, Mark, to our need to understand these broader movements that were happening, these broader acts of resistance and rebellion were happening so that we get away from the idea that Stonewall was the start of a movement as opposed to being a very important moment uh, or experience in a broader movement that was happening How important is it for us to understand that broader context so that we don't reduce the sense of agency and engagement to a singular event, but really see it as being a part of community saying enough, no longer will we be subjected to this harm?
1: Right. Well, I recently completed a study with a group of my students that documented more than 600 LGBT direct action protests, demonstrations, sit-ins, and riots nationally from 1965 to 1973. And yet we, uh, of course, focus on the Stonewall Rebellion, maybe a dozen or so other protests that occurred in that period. Uh, but I'm hoping the study will, uh, encourage, uh, greater investigation of all of these other episodes. Your listeners may be particularly interested in several that occurred in Connecticut in the aftermath of Stonewall that perhaps we can talk about. Uh, but, um, but right when I completed my book on the Stonewall Riots documentary history, I decided to uh, situate that moment and that specific location uh, in the larger story of what was happening nationally from 1965 to 1973. So I would say there were there were six cities uh, where um, there were quite a, a large number of LGBT protests, but these kinds of protests occurred in a couple dozen states and in uh, several dozen cities. So it was really a more uh, national groundswell. Um, And if I could share just one anecdote, I I love this uh, media story about Stonewall that appeared in California. Uh, Protests had really increased in number uh, and media visibility in San Francisco in April 1969, two months before Stonewall, with, uh, especially focused on the firing of an openly gay worker at State's Steamship Company. So that was an instance of employment discrimination rather than police harassment of a gay bar. Uh, and daily demonstrations ensued, a new organization formed, a Committee for Homosexual Freedom, uh, and uh, one report in California on the Stonewall riots congratulated the New York City protesters for joining the revolution. And I I really like and appreciate that we're joining because from their perspective, um, uh, New Yorkers were were coming around to what had begun developing elsewhere.
0: I'm shocked, Mark, that with all that we think we know about this history, with all that we think we know about how it wasn't just the practice, as you said, of police in a particular place, This kind of hatred and discrimination was codified into law. Everything from being able to discriminate against people in employment, discriminate against them in their military service, uh, or to police and regulate what people wore and how they presented themselves. That we don't know more about these 600-plus direct action events, that even historians haven't fully captured this. And so the work that you and your students have been doing is groundbreaking But in some ways, I also see it, Mark, as an indictment of our ignorance about the broader picture, the broader ways that people were resisting and dedicated to that resistance. Can you give us an example of one of those events that happened here in Connecticut? Because I think it also speaks to this direct action was really happening across the
1: United States. Right. Well, uh, my team uh, uncovered uh, three episodes that happened in 1971 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And so just reading from uh, from the inventory of these protests that uh, we developed, June 20th, 1971, a gay pride march in Bridgeport depending on which media source you rely on, there were 80 to 500 participants. That probably varies based on whether we're talking about marchers or spectators. But some of the headlines, um, Connecticut rally uh, to aim protest at federal laws, Connecticut gays fight slurs, Homosexual protest, that was in the Washington Post. Angry mob attacks festive gays, women badly beaten, Straits harass Bridgeport gays, and Kalos group, that was the name of the local activist group, hits back at hostility. Uh, And then the following month in July, uh, Kalos society demonstration to police headquarters and city hall in Bridgeport, 150 to 200 participants. And then in September, on September 3rd, Kalos Society demonstration against anti-lesbian discrimination at La Rosa Park West Bar in Hartford. So that actually is an incident in Hartford rather than uh, Bridgeport. Um, But it's an example of what we found uh, in a variety of of cities and states. uh, Demonstrations at LGBT bars often focused on anti-lesbian discrimination, anti-trans discrimination, and racist discrimination against people of color. Uh, Sadly, that was uh, common in many LGBT bars across the country. Uh, And the movement uh, was, uh, while generally focused on uh, targets like the police and government, uh, religious institutions, educational institutions. The movement also was not shy about criticizing its own organizations, its own businesses uh, when they were practicing divisive and discriminatory um, behaviors.
0: We did an earlier episode of our show and we talked about the attacks on communities, but we also talked about joy. And how joy can be this powerful antidote to some of that hate, how joy can affirm the wholeness of people and that while people are navigating this increase in um, anti-LGBTQ plus bills and legislation, the attacks on what people learn, how they learn, what they read. That communities like everyone else should have the opportunity to come together in celebration and that they can do both. They can be aware of in conversation with and also in celebration. I'm curious, given your long history of work in this area, your long history of understanding these areas, you know, how are you thinking about pride this year, given all of those broader factors Does it feel differently this year? Does it feel more imperative that we celebrate and recognize and honor and affirm
1: this year? I think like many people, I'm feeling conflicting emotions and conflicting impulses. On the one hand, this feels to me like the first Pride when we're not exactly post-COVID, but we're entering a new phase of, I guess it's COVID normalization. Uh, and many more of us, I think, are willing to gather, uh, at least outdoors in large crowds uh, and participate in Pride events. So there's a joy in that after three years of different levels of, of lockdown. Um, but but also, of course, there's tremendous concern, worry about what's happening in a couple dozen states where it's such a complicated moment where on the one hand we have seven or eight states that are now mandating LGBT history education in public schools. And on the other hand, you know, we have states that are banning discussion of gender identity and sexual orientation in public schools and uh, censoring um, college and university uh, classes uh, whether it's classes that focus on critical race theory uh, or classes uh, in queer studies. Uh, We're at one of those moments where I think we're seeing a a great divergence um, uh, in in what's happening in different parts of the country. It does actually remind me of the Stonewall era. uh, Right. And, uh, you know, as your listeners may well know, Connecticut was the second state to decriminalize Sodomy, um, passing the law just a few weeks before, uh, passing repeal just a few weeks before Stonewall. Uh, It didn't go into effect until 1971. Illinois had been the first. And what then ensued in the 1970s was almost half the states um, repealed their sodomy laws. Um, but half the states, con- or, you know, retained their sodomy laws, right? So there was great divergence uh, in that moment. We also saw through the 1970s cities, counties, states that, for the first time, passed sexual orientation uh, anti-discrimination laws. Some even began to ban discrimination based on gender identity and gender expression. Uh, and then uh, there was the Anita Bryant campaign that represented conservative backlash. So you know, I, I wonder whether historians in the future are going to look back at our moment and see parallels. So just as we had the the liberal social activism of the 60s um, then transform into the Nixon era law and order corrupt presidential politics, similarly we have the Obama era with various kinds of reforms followed by a corrupt, authoritarian, law and order president who was willing to use uh, social issues, moral issues, um, uh, racist politics to uh, to to gain. Uh, you know, to gain popular support, so you know, so there there are interesting parallels there, you know, and I I think that um, uh, only time will tell whether we're going to see the the kind of uprising that occurred uh, at Stonewall uh, in our you know in our current moment if the conservative backlash uh, continues.
0: One of the most amazing things for me, Mark, and I know it is for you too about working with young people on college campuses is their sense of resistance, their commitment to change, and their unwillingness to accept what is just because it's what has always been. And so as you think about the future going forward, you know, what we may see, I think that does give us a sense of hope about what's possible. Mark Stein is the Jamie and Phyllis Pasker Professor of History at San Francisco State University. He's also director of the Out History website and the co editor of Queer Pass. Mark, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: As mentioned in my conversation with Mark, you can hear a previous episode of Disrupted about trans discrimination and joy. You can find it on our webpage or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Coming up. Well, when the door was opened, I could see a glow of fire from behind me. And by the time I turned to look, and I'm thinking, this isn't happening.
0: Hear the story of the Upstairs Lounge, a popular LGBTQ plus bar in New Orleans. That's after this break.
1: So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient
2: and then bring them back to heart for recovery.
3: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
0: Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're learning more about the history of pride and hearing lesser-known stories that directly shaped the LGBTQ plus movement. The Upstairs Lounge was located in the French Quarter, and it was a popular bar in New Orleans in the 1970s. At the time, it was a sanctuary for the city's LGBTQ community, but it became the target of a violent attack 50 years ago this month, back in June, 1973. To tell us more about the Upstairs Lounge is Frank Perez, co-founder and executive director of the LGBT archives project. He's also chair of the planning committee that's commemorating the 50th anniversary of the upstairs lounge tragedy. We're also joined by Sherry Wright, a visual artist and producer of Tracking Fire, Finding Hope in the Aftermath of Hate. The documentary is in production about the upstairs lounge and the Pulse nightclub killings. I started by asking Frank to describe the upstairs lounge and its place within the LGBTQ community.
3: Well, the Upstairs Lounge uh, was a gay bar on the edge of the French Quarter in the early 1970s. It was primarily gay male centric. Uh, However, it was unique in that most bars at that time were segregated not only by race, but by sexual orientation. But the Upstairs Lounge was one of those bars that really didn't care about any of that. And so they were welcoming to, to any and all. Um, it was also important because in the early 1970s, New Orleans was a very closeted place. Now that may take some uh, people by surprise because New Orleans has this reputation of anything goes. You can get away with a lot here that you can't get away with elsewhere, and, and that's true. But it wasn't always so tolerant of uh, of queer people, and it certainly was not that way in the early 1970s, and so. Uh, the Upstairs Lounge was kind of a safe haven, a safe space. It was off the beaten track. Uh, you had to climb a uh, flight of stairs to get to it. If you really didn't know about it, you, you probably wouldn't stumble across it. And it catered primarily to a working class crowd. And it was just a, a really comfortable, safe neighborhood space uh, for the queer community.
0: You know, Frank, I wanna follow up because some people hear this and they will maybe be more familiar with Stonewall. And why that nightclub in New York City, again, surprising for some people that in the heart of New York City, you needed a space of refuge where people could go, they could have fun to not be worried about all of the challenges they were facing beyond the walls of the club, whether it's law, it was harassment by law enforcement, or just attacks on on personhood at the time. And to have this space in New Orleans, in the heart of the South, in Louisiana in 1973, That also meant that it attracted a lot of people who were opposed to his existence and created harm. Take us back to that night of June 24th, where this fire that really made it clear that just being a queer person in New Orleans attracted this kind of harm and danger.
3: Well, I I would begin by saying that um, I'm not necessarily in agreement with the the premise of your question with regard to The Upstairs Lounge. It was certainly a very homophobic time, and a lot of bars were raided and the targets of a lot of hatred. But The Upstairs Lounge fire was not set by a religious zealot. He was actually a sex worker, uh, a very troubled young man, a member of the LGBT community, um, and was really drunk on uh, a Sunday night and got thrown out of the bar for being obnoxious. And he got really angry, and he said, but I'm going to come back and burn you all out of here, as he was being escorted out of the bar. The, the fire ended up killing 32 people, and it remains to this day the deadliest fire in New Orleans history. And you had mentioned Stonewall, if I may comment on that. Um, yeah, Stonewall was uh, a touchstone moment in the queer rights movement, certainly not the first, perhaps the most well-known. For good or ill. Uh, but Stonewall resulted in tangible action. It resulted in the creation of the Gay Liberation Front, the Christopher Street Liberation March, which evolved into the pride rates. People came out of the closet. That was not the case with the Upstairs Lounge. And sometimes people like to compare the Upstairs Lounge arson to a Southern version of Stonewall. and it, it, I don't think it really works because the reaction of the community in New Orleans was to retreat deeper into the
0: closet. Frank, I want to come back in a moment to the reaction, the reactions of the city, the reactions of different communities across the city, and sort of what we learn about that. Sherry, I want to bring you in here, though, because I'm curious, you know, how did you hear about this upstairs lounge fire, and the aftermath that Frank just mentioned? And what about that made you want to tell this story more broadly?
2: Well, I heard about the fire in the most absurd way. It was uh, on one of these ghost hunter shows. And I was just shocked, uh, really angry that to hear about it this way, this should really be a part of our community's history, and it should be a significant part of New Orleans history. So, you know, there was very little information about that in 2012. So, you know, the little amount of research that i was able to to find you know through googling the thing that struck me the most were the photographs it just struck a chord it just really haunted me and i thought somebody you know must speak about this so i just um decided that that, you know i made a promise that i would be a voice and um here here we are now
0: Frank Sherry's documentary allows us to see these poignant, compelling images. It allows us to hear the voices and experiences of people, the layered experiences in a very different way. And it also is a means I think of honoring the people who were affected by this tragedy, whether directly by the loss of life or in the aftermath, as you said, and how people were treated. What does how the community in New Orleans responded, or the city of New Orleans responded, what does that tell us about the ways that victims are treated based on the kind of perceptions that we have about uh, identity or the perceptions we have about whether people were subject to harm because of their choosing? Talk to us more about that reaction of the city that creates the need to tell this story in its fullness.
3: In the early 1970s, um queerness in new orleans was not something people talked about i guess that's true everywhere uh people were starting to talk about it in other places but it was still a very hush-hush topic in new orleans and and the irony of it is that the power establishment that ran the city of new orleans had known for a long time that there was a pretty sizable queer community in new orleans concentrated primarily in the french quarter and their attitude was don't be too visible, tone it down, we don't wanna scare away tourist money. And it was in the 1950s that the city really started cracking down. When the fire happened in 73, the city was still pretty homophobic and and nobody wanted to talk about it. No politician had a word to say. Uh, The only thing that the Archbishop said, Archbishop uh, Philip Hannon, Said that uh, anybody who died in that fire will not be permitted to have a Catholic funeral, and a lot of other churches were very hateful and just didn't want to have open their doors to a memorial service or say anything or offer any kind of consolation. So there, there was no day of mourning, no public statements. So I mean that just gives you a little insight into how the city was uh, was feeling at that time.
0: Sherry, I'm listening to Frank and I'm shaking my head in disbelief, but also not really surprised that this was the response. That for people who had been so dishonored in life to have a city then dishonor them in death and not even being able to have a place for sort of public commemoration of this tragedy Was there a particular story, Sherry, as you were researching this and bringing together these pieces that Frank mentioned of the history of the city, the history of the industry, the importance of this lounge? Was there a particular story that stood out to you as you were piecing this all together?
2: Gosh, um, there were there are so many stories. uh, You know, speaking with the victims, the, the witnesses, you know, any anyone who had to live through. I think talking. Talking with people on the absolute worst day of their life, um, that that stood out to me the most. And and there were so many people, you know, it, it's hard to say one had more potency than the other, because they're to me, they were all equally horrific. One thing, one aspect of this that that really struck me, and it relates a bit to what was what Frank was saying as far as how the city was shutting this down was the the lack of uh, follow through on the police department how how they just let the alleged arsonist go he had been released from the hospital that the hospital had reached out to the police department to notify them of that as they had been requested to do and there was no follow through with that you know they they just let him go and hope the whole thing went away so I, I think you know just the way that people were treated or, or not treated, um probably stands out the most. It's the most infuriating thing to me.
0: Frank, we have we've learned collectively and individually. I think that people are engaging in different ways, but still need to be ever mindful of the importance of telling these stories in their completeness, in their accuracy, and you're doing that as a part of this archives project as well. And now you're planning for these commemorations of the 50th anniversary of this tragedy. What is it that you want listeners to know, not just about the upstairs lounge tragedy, but this need to remember and to commit to change? What should our listeners know?
3: Well, it it may sound like a cliche, but it really is true. If you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going. The past is important because it's a reference point. And I can tell you that the 32 people who died as a result of the upstairs lounge arson could have never imagined how far we've come in 50 years look at what's happened in just recent years we're starting to go backwards and so what i want people to know is that the gains we've achieved and and the rights we've fought for and earned and won can just as easily be taken away and so i would tell people to get off their asses and go vote and if you're not registered to vote go register to vote it's as simple as that we are in the majority those of us who or woke, or whatever the term is, uh, those of us who understand empathy and education and compassion, that's the majority of Americans. And if people don't vote, you allow a small group of small-minded politicians to exploit people's fear and bigotry. And and you've seen that with women, with African Americans, with Native Americans, with queer people. This is nothing new. And we know the answer. The answer is to register and vote.
0: I want to thank you both for reminding us not only of these tragedies, these losses of life, but also about the power of community and the power of starting and building right where you are. Frank Perez is co-founder and executive director of the LGBT Plus Archives Project. He's also chair of a commemoration for the 50th anniversary of the Upstairs Lounge tragedy. Sherry Wright is a visual artist, producer, director, and writer of Tracking Fire. It's a documentary about the Upstairs Lounge. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about the Upstairs Lounge and Sherry's new documentary trailer, you can visit the Disrupted webpage. It's ctpublic.org disrupted. Coming up after the break, you can hear about the raid of Blues Bar in New York City and its impact within the Black LGBTQ community. Kalila Brown Dean, welcome back to Disrupted. This hour, we're examining lesser known stories within the LGBTQ community and history. Thirteen years after the Stonewall Uprising, there was another incident in New York City. Blues Bar was popular in the black LGBTQ community and was raided by the NYPD in 1982. It's now known as New York City's last raid on a gay bar. Joining me now to talk about Blue's Bar and its impact on the Black LGBTQ plus community is Beau Lancaster. He's a content creator and LGBTQ plus historian. He's also an adjunct professor at the City University of New York, and he's currently working on a documentary. It's called Gay, Black and Blue, The Raid on Blue's Bar. Beau, welcome to Disrupted.
4: Hey, well, thank you.
0: You know, before we get into talking about this new project that you have and the work that you've been doing, I'm curious about your own background. So the fact that you are an historian, an historian who is interested in Black LGBTQ plus experiences and communities, stands out in a number of ways. Talk to us about your background and your passion for that focus of history.
4: Sure. Um, well, I'm a Native New Yorker, I'm also African-American, I'm also gay as well. And for me, the study of our history, you know, not only within the caucus of um, the identity of people of color, but particularly for African-Americans, for me, was really claiming a sense of identity, claiming a sense of history that oftentimes is not expressed within our historical narratives. Um, i think for for us as a larger community it's always a good it's always a good um a good feeling to really see yourself in the narrative to really see yourself in the archives as well and I want to just understand what's the larger range of what our history looks like, not just um, individuals that said Jane Baldwin, for instance, or Lorraine Hanbury, but so many other individuals who lived in our everyday lives and really helped shape the world that we live in today. There has always been queer identifying people. There have always been queer identifying people of color, and there has always definitely been Black queer identifying people as well. So for me, really narrowing down what that identity looks like within our historical narratives is just part of the work that I do, just claiming that larger sense of identity.
0: Let's talk about this work you're doing to reclaim the larger sense of identity. But in many ways, Beau, I think it's also about reclaiming a larger sense of agency and visibility. You mentioned, for example, James Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry, who we know as these amazing literary figures but are just now really understanding the kinds of challenges they navigated at their time. And it leads us to this documentary that you're working on, Gay, Black, and Blue, The Raid on Blue's Bar. It's important, I think, in that sense of history of where do people find a sense and a space of safety and community within a larger society that often tries to erase them. Share with our listeners briefly the story of this raid on one of New York City's Black gay bars.
4: Sure. So Blue's Bar was a bar that was located in Times Square. It was actually directly across the street from the old New York Times building at the time. And the raid occurred on September 29th, 1982 at 10 30 PM at night um, during the raid over 30 um, African-American individuals. These African-American individuals will have had a variety of different sexual identities as well as gender identities were attacked by the NYPD. And, you know, the history of the raid itself is what you see happen afterwards, which I find much more quite fascinating. After the raid, there is a huge 1,500 interracial protest demonstration that happens in Times Square on October 15, 1982. And then a year later, there's no history behind it. The victims never received formal justice. There are never any members of the NYPD who are kicked off the force, for instance. And to me, I think it really speaks to this really grand intersection of not only race and sexual and gender identity, but also aspects of class as well that you see coalesce within arguably the last gay bar raid in New York City history. Many people associate the last gay bar raid in New York City history with Stonewall, which is in 1969. But this is an incident that happens much later after Stonewall and really, I think, speaks to a much different history, particularly inter- Intersectionalities so of all the different classes that I mentioned, all the different identities that I mentioned to you before. It doesn't mean that those identities were not represented within Stonewall, but Stonewall representation today is oftentimes very whitewashed. Um, but for blues, we can really tell a really fascinating history in relation to race and class and sexual identities and gender identities that I think really can help us really understand a great intersectional. Uh, framing for some of the world that we live in today.
0: I want to talk about the legacies of not just that attack, but the ways that the community came together after. But Bo, I'm embarrassed to say that until we started doing research for this episode, I had never heard of this attack. And I'm someone who, you know, I'm a professor. I consider myself fairly learned in these areas. I can tell you about Stonewall. I can tell you about some of the other riots that happened in New York City in the wake of attacks of law enforcement on vulnerable people. But this is not a story that is widely known. Why do you think that this particular incident, because it's not just about LGBTQ history in New York City, it's really this longer pattern of, it matters not just that people are victimized and traumatized, it often matters who those victims are in terms of the stories we tell, the importance that we see. Why do you think this particular event is so overlooked in that historical retelling?
4: It's because who are the victims of the center of the event? The first part, they're Black. They're overwhelmingly African-American. Um, second part, in addition that they're queer identifying people at this time period and queer people, regardless of race, particularly in the early 1980s, were not a protected class of people, um, either legally on the state level or the locality level, because it was not a gay civil rights bill that was passed in New York City in 1986, right? So you had those aspects as well, but also... Who is out applying the blues bar at this time? And people who are occupied the blues bar at this time is a good portion of sex workers or what they refer to as trade, as well as um, a good portion of drag queens, right? So you have these multiple different identities, um, gender performance identities, sexual identities, as well as race that is, and I, I like to highlight that part, race, <laughs> that really is making sure that stories such as blues, when it does happen, it becomes a big moment within the community itself. But afterwards, it's oftentimes not really kept in the same degree of the historical narratives that we like to teach about LGBTQ history within New York. Um, and the reason for that is because that history presentation is oftentimes overwhelmingly white, it's overwhelmingly affluent, it's overwhelmingly cis, it's overwhelmingly male, um, it's overwhelmingly focuses on really a couple of neighborhoods within new york city primary greenwich village right so because of that something such as blues which is happening uptown within times square which is seen as a center of um people of color queer culture as well as people called queer sex trade culture as well as class it's not really seen within our historical archives there was people who would look at blues before I would interpret it, um, but they were mostly interpreted from an aspect of very which is a racial phenomenon within itself, but very rarely did people actually really interpret it from that aspect of race, which I found very fascinating. Um, and I think You know, the fact that I am African-American, I was able to, and gay, I was able to be like, wait a second, like, why are we only interpreting this from the aspect of gentrification? How about we actually start to interpret it from the aspect of race? And what did that look like within when you're holding these multiple identities within this explosive situation of the race? So it makes, because of the stories that we choose to hold on to and that we choose to keep in the archives, it makes complete sense that someone like yourself who is highly educated, highly aware of these issues, will not know about this because many people don't know about it.
0: Well, thank you for making me feel a little bit better about my ignorance, Bo. but I wanna push no through worries. that ignorance, right? Because if we don't tell these stories in their completeness and their fullness, the multiple identities at play, the multiple systems of stigma at play that force people to suffer in silence and never honor what they went through, then these things persist and happen again. I wanna talk about the the archives and that historical work that you're doing as an historian. Is there a particular story uh, from the event, the attack or the, the aftermath of it? Is there a particular story that stands out to you from the work that you've done?
4: I would say the particular story that stands out to me is one that is caught on the audio tapes. There is a um, news report called the Intergay Radio Station, which was on WBAI. And they will actually broadcast their gay news report across the entire nation at this time. That's That was the aspect of gay media. It was very small. But within the audio tapes, there is a description of a man, an African-American man, who was literally just walking down the street and the cops are coming by and the cops push him into the bar and they push him into the bar and they accuse him of being engaged in the criminal activity in the bar itself. And he's just like, I just got off a of poor authority. I was literally just walking down the street and now I'm attacked, you know, by the cops to me. That's something that I can really identify with today. To me, there is such a random violence that happens in relation to racism, you know, not only within the physical sense, but also within the psychological sense. And that's such an everyday story because there are these beliefs, you know, particularly that, oh, if I train my kids to only talk to the cops in this manner, oh, if I train my kids to, you know within the system of white supremacy that many of us grow up in to disarm white people, then they're going to be okay. And this man is literally just walking down the street and he just pushing into a bar raid. <laughs> you know, I think to me, that was something that really jumped out. And to hear his testimony, and he's only speaking about for maybe a minute or so, was really the most striking thing to me.
0: The randomness of racism. Let's hear some audio from that archive so our listeners can hear and have that experience as well. And then I want to come back to you, both for your reaction. Here's the audio.
2: There had been a rather bloody assault on a bar,
0: a black gay bar in midterm Manhattan by a sizable force of police officers.
3: There's a complaint in by... By two officers of them being attacked in a bar. Okay, I don't, I don't know if there was any arrest made. I know we had an injured cop and we had a a multitude of calls there. They told us to reach for the wall, and at that point, then they started to beat us. You know, I'm with no, I mean, I'm with no warning, and they started shouting that um, that two cops got beat up outside in the neighborhood, and that we were to blame for it.
0: But, what stands out to you as you listen to those witness accounts, the uh, accounts of NYPD's representative, what stands out to you as you hear that clip?
4: Um what stands out to me when I hear the clip the most is really, when you hear the NYPD's first hand account, they have absolutely no idea on what's happening. They're not sure. And then when I hear the voice of the victim, there is much more assurance within that individual experience itself, right? Within what was the trauma was just occurred. Um, and I, to me, that those aspects of when I listen to those parts of the tapes, you can really see the differentiation between an institution that's trying to step away from, oh, this never happened Who me, and people who are now left with within the rubble of 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 the you know of the trauma now that they had to process.
0: But with the, I want to bring us back to where we started. You talked about your own experiences as a Black queer person, and the ways that you navigate these multiple systems, multiple experiences, and the way that you affirm agency and identity. As you think about this documentary that you're working on, the legacy of this body of work that you're building, what's your hope for how it will strengthen our understanding of queer, Black, LGBTQ plus communities and experiences? What is it that you wanna contribute to that understanding?
4: I think I wanna contribute the understanding that we are always, we have always been here. Um, and that our history in relation to where we are is oftentimes erased because Black history is not oftentimes well-preserved and then queer history is oftentimes not well-preserved as well. And in order for us to actually find out oftentimes the aspect of Black history and Black queer history, we have to go into these larger traditions within our own community of Black people, really having conversations one-on-one with a lot of our elders in relation to that oral history tradition that is much more in-depth within our community. A lot of the information that I got for the firsthand account of Blues, as well as the entire time period, was really one-on-one conversations that people would talk about events that would happen four years ago, of course, verifying those events within the archives, but really speaking to that larger history itself, um, because that's how we really build into the narrative framing that is so necessary for us. In addition to that, what I would like to add into the larger repertoire of blues is it's really, I see it as something that's done in two parts. It's to acknowledge and say thank you to the generation that I never had the opportunity to meet a Black queer people, um, many of whom are dead because of the age crisis or because of old age. It's a thank you letter to them. But at the same time, it's also meant for really the Black queer kid or the person, the color queer kid who might really be in Um, let's say, Cincinnati, Ohio, or let's say Atlanta, or let's say New York City, the South Bronx, where I grew up, for instance. And now they could see themselves in the part of the archives. Now they could begin to point themselves out into what it was. Not necessarily the bar itself, the bar raid, which is this horrible incident, but to really give voice and a sense of dignity to the victims themselves. These were people who lived the everyday life, just like the everyday life that we live. And to really have their voice be centered in a way, to really honor their history, I think that to me is the ultimate legacy. Um, and to honor that history and to give that back to the generation behind me, then that's, that's I did the ultimate job in that relation, right? To, you know, uh, 10 years from now, where nine years from now when blues will actually have a 50th anniversary 50th milestone we can maybe say um a people can remember that people could commemorate that in a way then by watching this film or by wondering what kind of racism or what type of transphobia do we have in our own martin day queer spaces then in addition that i think i've done my job
0: well you I've already achieved so much, and we are excited to see that work continue. The fact that you are creating a thank you letter to the elders and a love letter for those yet to come. We appreciate you. Bo Lancaster is an LGBTQ plus historian and content creator. He's adjunct professor at the City University of New York and currently working on the documentary, Gay, Black, and Blue, The Raid on Blues Bar. Bo, thank you so much. Thank you. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Carol Chen and Stacey Addo. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you like an episode of Disrupted, please remember to leave us a comment and share it with your friends. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean.